I'm James Norton. And I'm Dina Graziano. And this is Homeland Homeroom. We're back after a brief late summer hiatus. In case you need a bit of reminding, after our time away, I'm the former Democratic Communications Director of the House Homeland and Judiciary Committees. And I'm former Deputy Assistant Secretary at the Department of Homeland Security in the George W. Bush Administration, and now founder and president of Play Action Strategies. And we're recording this episode a bit before September 11th, so you'll be listening to it a couple days after. However, it's been 17 years since 9-11 attacks. I really can't believe it. Um, I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, I remember I was wearing a blue suit that day. It was super hot. Were you in Washington? I was. I um, was working for the Judiciary Committee, and we had a hearing that day. And I remember coming in um, on time, which was rare, (laughs) (laughs) Um, and seeing the, um, the TV on in my office. And at that time, they didn't know what was going on. It was just um, something happened in New York. Something happened in New York, and no one was really clear. There was never a thought in my mind that the country was under attack. Um, But I remember as the day went on and information trickled in, um, we were sitting in the hearing. Right. And I remember um, someone yelling, they've evacuated the Senate. There's a plane in the air. It's coming for the Capitol. And the uh, congressman who was running the hearing was still going. Right. (laughs) And uh, he wanted to continue. And finally, people just started getting up from the hearing and they were like, we're out of here. Right. Like, they've evacuated one one chamber. Why Why are we all sitting here waiting if a plane is headed for the Capitol? And was there a plan? Was it just people just started running no, or was, what was the... It was running. Yeah. At that time, there were no barricades. So you could drive right up, you know, to the Rayburn building and, um, and people were going um, the wrong way. Mm. Like it was mass chaos, people going up and down one-way streets the wrong way. It was anything anyone could do to scatter. And I, you know, I kind of equate it to my parents, you know, talking about the Kennedy assassination. Right. I think that's um, something they always remember in that generation. They remember where they were, watching it on TV. Um, and I feel like 9-11, at least for me, is something that I, you know, will never... Um, it's always going to be a part of me. It'll be always part of me, and, right. I, and I'll remember every detail for the most part of that day. Right, right. It's kind of crazy. What about you? Yeah, so I was uh, I was living in Boston at the time, and I was a campaign manager for a congressional candidate. She was a state senator. Her name was Joanne Sprague, and she was a state senator in Massachusetts, and she was running for a congressional seat held by Joe Moakley, who was mm-hmm. a famous congressman from, from South remember. Boston, and uh, it was a big deal when he passed away. And uh, Joanne was a Republican running for the seat, and it was a primary that day. You know, as like you, I was out kind of checking polls in the morning and driving around and kind of seeing we had, you know, people out there holding signs and then doing all that kind of stuff and uh, getting back into our campaign office. And there were a few people in there and we literally only had one small like eight inch TV. That's all we really had because that's all you no really flat screens. no flat screens at the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's all you really needed or wanted or there was a radio going and uh, we had kind of seen that first plane and kind of talked about, oh, that's kind of strange. It must have been mm-hmm. a small plane or something or. Right. The governor of Massachusetts at the time, her name was Jane Swift, um, had gone to what they have, a bunker in Framingham, Massachusetts. So she was in a bunker because a lot of the planes had taken off from Logan Airport. So there was a lot of confusion in Boston in terms of what was happening, were there other terrorists or or other people, you know, they're looking to do bad things. And so she was in the bunker saying that the election was off and that it was going to be canceled. Then our Secretary of State, Bill Galvin, was going on TV saying the election was still on. So despite the kind of the crisis of the day and everybody worrying about their safety, there was also this issue of, like, we had this election that, that's going on, and, you know, the Democrats had, like, 10 or 11 on their side. We had a couple on our side, and 
um, you know, there was just a lot of confusion about what do we do? We we're trying to locate the candidate and, you know, what was she doing? And people were kind of pouring into the office and looking for answers and trying to figure out, you know, what are we going to do next? And um, as, as you all kind of remember that whole day, kind of the people who were there and kind of who were part of that process, a couple of people I still, you know, are very close to today, you know, based on that, mm-hmm. on that event and kind of what happened there. So it was very, uh, it was a very interesting day, given the fact that we were under attack, but also, you know, a chance to do something that this country is founded on, which is a democratic process and voting in elections. So that actually kind of became a little bit of a theme, I think, on both sides towards the end of the day. Like, hey, you know what? Like, we don't know what's going on here, but let's let's try to exercise our right Almost to vote and get out there. Yeah, it really was. It really was. So it was a really, really, really unbelievable kind of experience uh, from that perspective. Would you say that um, at that, that day or shortly thereafter, that kind of pushed you towards working in the homeland security realm and obviously you were doing political work for sure i mean absolutely yeah absolutely i really just had him involved in kind of local politics and and state politics at that point and you know it was pre before dhs existed exactly and you know wanting to get down and and move to washington and uh become part of an administration and and kind of help out and see what we could do i think a lot of people had that um and at the same time you know they were still looking the rescue workers were still working in new york city they were still working here in washington dc at the pentagon Mm -hmm. um and uh you know trying to uncover and and clean up the areas and and find you know remains and that went on for a number of years it did and um you know i worked for congressman conyers at that time who represented detroit um, which has a very large muslim population Mm -hmm. and um, we were having to deal with the challenges that Muslim Americans were facing, you know, firsthand out of our, you know, constituents of the district um, and all of the the issues that they were facing post post 9-11, which, you know, added a whole nother layer of issues to to Congress as well as, you know, just to people in general and how they were living their everyday lives. Right. You know, unfortunately, um, I don't know if we've come that far. Right today from that, from that 17 you know years ago right no i agree i think there's i mean i think george bush you know at the time you know kind of wrapped his arm around around the community and tried to protect them and say mm-hmm. look this isn't about you know the the religion or, or as a whole but there are some you know bad actors that we're, mm-hmm. we're worried about and i think that's a little bit different than maybe we're seeing today but and we have a muslim ban now yep. you know so yep. look at where we are 17 years right. later whole different episode for sure yeah yep. but, but it just shows that yeah. you know for us it's been a long time but from, you know, the public policy realm, we've kind of regressed. We talk about unity a lot, um, it seems like, or the, the need to have unity. And I, I do remember the country being very united for for a year or two after the mm-hmm. attacks and very close and working together and trying to figure out a way to, to protect the country and, and, you know, close together. I'm sure you probably felt that or witnessed that as a, as a staffer on the Hill at the time. I did. Um, unfortunately, though, you know, we were tasked with writing the, the 9-11 bill. Right. Which you know was came out of the Judiciary Committee. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, his staff worked you know day and night, you know, across the aisle to try to create legislation that would protect the nation, but also not hurt Americans, right? Um, and you know, protect privacy and protect citizens and protect civil rights. Yep. But, well, I think that's that's an important point too. I think uh, especially in the in the 2000s, there was a lot of legislation that passed. We complain a lot today about legislation that doesn't pass, but there were a lot of bills that passed, right? The, the, the trans, like people, a lot of people don't remember, and we're going to talk about this later, is the Transportation Security Administration bill. You had the Patriot Act. You had the Intelligence Reform Bill. So there was a lot of, a lot of activity. that's what I meant to say, the Patriot Act. Patriot Act, so okay. Not, not, not the 9-11 bill, but sure, the Patriot Act. Sure, which I think that passed in like 40 days or it something did, like that. It did, but it was not the, the bill that 
Congress actually created together. Yeah. It was a bill that John Ashcroft, who was then the attorney general, kind of slipped in in the middle of the night. And it wasn't actually the work of that bipartisan staff on the Judiciary Committee and looked very different than what the consensus was, at least from that committee at that time, which I think was one of the first political moves we saw of mm-hmm. that time um, where using the, the legislative branch as a way to protect but divide us at the same time. Right. And here to talk with us today about that day, September 11, 2001, and how things have changed since then on the security front, we're joined by one of my former bosses and former deputy secretary at the Department of Homeland Security, Michael P. Jackson, who was a senior member of the George W. Bush administration, and he also was the deputy secretary at the Department of Transportation from 2001 to 2003 and was at DOT on 9-11. So welcome, Michael. We're really proud and glad to have you here. Happy to be here. So before you got here, uh, James and I talked a little bit about our experience on 9-11 and, you know, where we were, how we felt. What are your memories? I had an unusual day that morning. I was um, normally picked up early in the morning uh, by a DOT driver, uh, scooted off to the building, and uh, my daughter was uh, in um, her first weeks of kindergarten. And so I said, I'm going to drive myself to work, take Catherine to school, and come in. So uh, just as I was, uh, after I'd done that and was approaching the Pentagon, I got a call from uh, the FAA command center saying, we're we're not really sure what's happening, but where the heck are you? How come you're not in your car, and when can you be at the office? (laughs) So uh, I was able to be there shortly before the second plane hit the towers. Wow. So how did your day unfold after that? Well, can you talk a little bit about what your responsibilities were generally um, and kind of how they changed that day for you? And just as you, as just to add on to that, one of the things we were trying to reference before is the world is so different now in terms of communication tools and that we just got to get people in a different mindset in terms of what the communication tools were there, too. So just to give a sense of trying to. Well, limited. Yeah, yes. you're 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 uh, you're absolutely right. Um and the information was not perfect. At first, we thought that the first tower had been struck by a, a general aviation plane, and it was an accident. And then it became very clear that this was no accident. And um, so I, I spent the rest of the morning basically in our command center. Uh, it was a very rudimentary uh, operation and small and imperfect uh, set of tools to know what we had and what we were dealing with. But connecting with the um, FAA, with mm-hmm. the Coast Guard, who were helping to manage the evacuation of New York. Uh, and um, somewhere about midpoint in the day, the Secret Service uh, called and said that I was uh, required to evacuate the building. I was um, sliced into a <laughs> motorcade that went to one of those famously undisclosed locations <laughs> where I found a lot of members of Congress and other <laughs> government leaders uh, trying to exchange information with each other about what was known and what was uh, what was going to happen. Wow. Um, so it's kind of a traumatic day, I would say. You know, it was a day that revealed um, 
evil in its sort of purest form in my mind, but it was a day that also uh, was inspirational as you watched Americans react to this, as you saw the first responders in New York just dive into risk and danger, uh, as you saw Coast Guard men and women. We, we didn't call in everybody. Mm-hmm. If you were a Coast Guard person and you were within 200 miles of New York City, all those people just showed up, all the reserve officers, mm-hmm. they just showed up and they took small boats and big boats and they started triaging people who was hurt, who needed help, and they, and they, they worked. So at one level, it, it was an inspirational thing to see the toughness of America, the resolve of America, the ingenuity of, uh, of our country, and then in the hours and days and weeks to see Americans come together and say, this, this is something that we will, uh, we will contend with effectively. We did. I mean, that's, that's a, a very good point, and it's something that we, I think a lot of people strive to see more today in terms of inspiration and wanting people to, to do better for the country and help Americans. Well, one thing, obviously, that came out of 9-11 was the creation of TSA. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the decision to stand up TSA and what your responsibility was in that in that decision and how, how did it go? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll start with the night after I got freed from the undisclosed location. <laughs> Norm, uh, we knew from the beginning that the same type of attacks could be directed not just at aviation, but at other transportation infrastructure, air, sea, land. And, uh, of course, no no airplanes were flying. No commercial airline was flying. For, how long, how for, long did that last? I don't even remember. I, I think, yeah. uh, I can't believe, Weeks, I forget months? remember. No, uh, days, th- three or four days, five days, something at the mm-hmm. most uh, like that. But uh, uh, at that point... The, there was no TSA, as you say, and uh, the security function of screening people was done on an airport-by-airport basis by um, privately hired guards who worked for an airline. So I'll take you to uh, about somewhere about 1 a.m. when Norm and I had the first chance to talk by ourselves in, in his, his office. Norm had a window overlooking... Uh, the Potomac River through a little slice of his window, and you could see National Airport during a normal night lit up and operating. And this night, for the first time since World War II, the lights were all out. But there was an orange glow from the fires and the response still uh, happening at the at the Pentagon. And so we were sort of standing there. We called it the pizza parlor dilemma. And we said, we, we've got uh, the pizza parlor dilemma and this is not going to go away for as long as you and I are here and as long as our children are here. And what, what, what we meant by that was we had both been very much struck by an attack in Israel uh, where uh, a, an individual with a bomb went into a pizza parlor, pulled a string, and killed uh, a, a number of people, in, including innocent, innocent young people. And the question is... Uh, what can you do to stop this? You know, it's a balance between uh, the rigor of the tools you want to use to stop it. You could stop the pizza parlor dilemma by just uh, closing all pizza parlors and, uh, you know, strip searching everybody who came into one if you wanted to keep them open. But that's obviously uh, not consistent with our values as a country. And so how do you find the balance point? That was really our question 
repeatedly in the months and, and years afterwards is how do you find the right balance? And what you can do and should do, you know, in the first days and weeks was different than what we could do after the Congress passed the TSA legislation and created TSA. And then as TSA started from scratch and grew, what we could do in the first few months was substantially changed in, in the next months. So how do you feel like we're doing? I mean, obviously, you know, we've had recent uh, changes at TSA related to snacks and we've had dogs. You know, we have dogs now. We have, you know, we've taken our shoes off. You know, there's been such a change over the past 17 years of what is expected of not only the security, but of the travelers and how they need to be informed. If we if we had tried to build TSA uh, in the normal government way, we, we would have had a pathetic failure and we never would have met the deadline. There was something like, I don't remember the exact number now, uh, blessfully, but uh, it was something <laughs> like 37 or 35 specific deadlines written into the legislation. Uh, the main one was by the fall, I believe, in November, we would have taken over passenger screening at every single airport in America. And then uh, by December 31st, uh, we would have taken over all of the baggage explosive detection work that's done typically downstairs in an airport for check baggage. And there were dozens of intermediate requirements. So what we did is we, we reached out and we found people who had business process management skills, and we borrowed them from some of the best corporations in America. We had a line problem uh, at every airport in America, obviously. We, we borrowed from Disney, uh, the, the guy who was in charge of line management. Always Disney. Yeah. Disney right. always did. <laughs> well, we borrowed uh, from uh, an engineering, uh, a global engineering firm, a woman who was uh, expert at building things quickly and complex uh, uh, installation construction uh, deals overseas and in the United States. I remember we had to hire a federal security director for every airport in America, train them, get them there, help them get their teams uh, aligned. And um, <laughs> I had some nice person come in to me from, from personnel at DOT and tell me, if, you know, a few days into this that uh, they were going to put a GSA uh, job description out for this and don't worry, within several months we'll have all that published and approved <laughs> within the government and then we can start hiring these guys. And I just laughed and I said, you can throw all that away, don't worry, uh, we'll take care of this in another fashion. <laughs> and the next day we put out a RFP with one day notice to uh, all the major uh, executive recruiter firms and we chose one and they they found the first 70 or so and then then you know I swore in a lot of those Norm swore in yeah. a lot of those, <laughs> those women and men and then we said you got to go find you know a bunch more and then we hired uh, uh, another firm to do the recruiting and training of the actual people a commercial firm because the government had no capacity to do this no experience to do this no tools to do this no people to do this so we, we ended up having a million applications we cleared, did background investigations, and checked, uh, you know, physical capabilities for 100,000 people, and we hired uh, a number that's, you know, between 60 and 70,000 of them uh, and put them to work uh, during that first year. And what about the, uh, sorry, I no, question. Um, 
just in terms of the Coast Guard and maybe just tell us a little bit of how helpful the Coast Guard was to you in terms of using them as an asset to help stand up the TSA, given they were part of the Transportation Department. <laughs> well, I have a soft spot in my heart for the Coast Guard. Uh, after multiple days of working just like ruinous shifts, a bunch of the Coast Guard enlisted men who had um, been working in the ashes and looking for bodies and looking uh, hope against hope to find someone alive, they were told, you guys are exhausted, go home and take, you know, sleep and then come, come back and work. So one of the master chiefs called the headquarters and say, sir, I'm calling to request the approval to disobey this order. <laughs> and um, just a couple of blocks from uh, the towers is um, a church and a graveyard that contains the remains of Alexander Hamilton, the man who created the Coast Guard the man that we all respect for, for our organization and that we oh. strive to know and to understand and to take his ideas of public service into our lives. And he said, with your permission, sir, we'd like to clean his grave off. Wow. That's what they did. And some other Coasties came to help him. And there they were with chaos surrounding this, this graveyard and church. And there's a bunch of guys on their hand and knees with sponges and waters and buckets trying to take Alexander Hamilton's uh, gravesite back to a presentable position. So, and I think that, that leaving things better than I'm you find teary, it. Actually, I think I got choked up there. <laughs> well, that's that's, that's what all America did. You, you know, the Coast Guard d does that daily, and people don't have a lot of visibility into it, but. That's not just enlisted people or federal workers. It's it's Americans of all type. That would bring me to my next question. From a national security standpoint, how do you feel the threats have changed, and what should we be looking for? I mean, should we be focusing on TSA like we were? Where do you think we should be, both as, as somebody who is an American looking around and protecting my kids, and frankly, from a government standpoint, where do you think we should be putting our, our money? and our time? Well, that's an excellent question and a, and a hard one, but the short answer, and then I'll unpack that a little bit more, is that um, uh, the pizza parlor dilemma is still as vivid and real and important as it was back on 9-11. This is a dangerous world that we live in. That This war on terrorism will not end like the war that our fathers went to battle in World War II. It won't end with a, a signed agreement that, yes, we're done. This will be perpetual. And so my daughter, who's now an adult and working in the workspace, is going to have this as part of her life. And so we as a country have to continue to invest and to, to be di uh, diligent but we can't let this uh, change who we are as a people or make us so introverted and consumed by this that we can't enjoy the freedoms that we uh, have in our country and that our founders uh, made for us. Because then they win. Then they win, yeah. Absolutely. You know, service to the government is obviously very important. Um, we're relying more on the private sector more and more, especially when it comes to things like cyber, where there has to be a partnership. What more could we do to make it easier for you know executives in the private sector, smart people in the private sector, to kind of come in and out of government, contribute and go back, contribute and go back, and you know is there is there salary increases, are there other 
kind of uh, red tape we should be looking to cut or what, what more? James and I do? are just trying to figure out how we get back in government. Yeah. <laughs> trying to make eat. it easier. Yeah. <laughs> well, do it. Do it. You're, you're both young enough and, and you're smart and experienced. So I, I encourage it. Uh, the, the thing is, is that, uh, you, you know, the federal government's never going to compete on the basis of salary alone. But what you get when you when you work in the government is a sense of satisfaction of the job. And uh, here's three people sitting in a room who all feel the same way. So it can be challenging and irritating, just like anything. <laughs> uh, but it's an amazingly rewarding thing to do to try to roll up your sleeves and help a a mayor in your hometown uh, do something that needs doing, uh, a governor, uh, a a cabinet member, a president. Well, I want to thank you for your service um, and thank you for coming to speak with us today. It's been very, very enlightening and enjoyable. I really hope you haven't burned your jersey because I (laughs) think the government uh, could still use a few good men and women, um, whether it's this administration or in the future. So, um, Again, really appreciate you taking the time today. It's been great. It's been my pleasure, and I want to reciprocate by thanking uh, both of you for for the work that you've done in the government and in the private sector to help the better betterment of uh, American security. So, uh, this uh, this podcast is a is a great little way to try to help a different collection of people think about uh, some of the issues that uh, are being are being tortured over in uh, in Washington. So so congratulations to the both of you for that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and just as Dina said, we really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing some of your unique stories and, and kind of reminding us what happened, you know, on 9-11 and kind of how the country moved forward and, and kind of where it is today. So Michael Jackson, former Deputy Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security and former Deputy Secretary of the Department of Transportation, all around great guy. Thanks so much for joining us here in the Homeland Homeroom. Thank you. Welcome back to Homeland Homeroom. We're reflecting on the 17 years that have passed since September 11th. I'm James Norton. And I'm Dina Graziano. So we definitely want to hear from our listeners, and here's a few questions that we heard this week. What exactly qualifies as a terrorist attack? The Las Vegas and Pulse nightclub shootings definitely targeted and terrorized people, but they weren't labeled terrorist attacks. What exactly does that label mean? You know, I think that's something that we're struggling with now. I think after 9-11, the gut reaction was that it happened from, you know, somebody overseas. It was a terrorist organization or some sort of nation state that was, you know, wanting to do harm, you know, to domestically or in the U.S. or some overseas assets that maybe the U.S. had. I think that the definition of a terrorist attack, you know, now is, is coming under some scrutiny, you know, in terms of how we classify that and what exactly it is and what the response should be. Obviously, you know, we've seen a lot of domestic terror attacks here that maybe weren't sponsored necessarily by a nation state, but by, you know, individuals who have, you know, killed lots of people. And I think that that's something that we're, we're struggling with here. I would boil it down to something, you know, like the word causes terror. And I think like James, you just said, it's traditionally we've thought of things overseas or someone else coming to the United States and doing something that harms Americans. But um, it's basically something that causes terror. And I think you look at the Pulse nightclub and you 
look at Las Vegas and, you know, those things cause terror amongst our citizens. I also think it becomes a legal term um, and what, you know, what our law enforcement can do based on what we're calling it. And I think, um, you know, obviously if something is an official terrorist attack, it triggers a whole bunch of laws that are related to national security that are not available to basic law enforcement. I think when it's just a, a, an active shooter in the U.S. or a knife attack or, um, you know, something at a concert, I think it's a very different set of laws that are in force when it's um, what we'd consider domestic terrorism versus, you know, the traditional terrorism that we think of with 9-11. Some sort of organization or, yeah. or nation state, you know, sponsored or trying to you know, do harm to the, to the federal government in this case. Right. If we look back at, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing, mm -hmm. that was a terrorist attack. Domestic it terror, was just sure. domestic yep. terrorism. And I think it's that fine line of, you know, terrorism that's conducted by Americans on our on ourselves versus someone else coming to terrorize us from another country. So let's go to one more listener. Would it have been possible for security officials to have done a better job at anticipating 9-11? How would we detect or anticipate something on that scale being planned today? You know, I think that's a really hard question. I mean, obviously, you know, 17 years ago, we did not have the technology we have today. Um, you know, our intelligence agencies were doing the best they could. I mean, I think we could all sit here and poke holes. Um, and, and I believe Congress did at, at some intelligence fail failures that occurred back then. But I don't also think that does us uh, any service, uh, you know, at this point to talk about what failures happened 17 years ago. I do think that there are many rules and laws and um, intelligence gathering organizations in place now today that um, have their ear to the ground. And unfortunately, you know, no one ever thought that something like 9-11 could have ever happened. So I think as a country, we've done a good job of learning lessons from, you know, whether there were whether there are intelligence failures or we just missed something, I think we've done a good job of putting things in place to make us safer today than we were 17 years ago. At least I hope we have. And from what I know, you know, from what little I know, <laughs> I, I, I think we're in a better place today than we are then, at least from a physical attack. Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, I think a lot a lot has happened since since September 11th, 2001. I think that, you know, the government was in a very different place. There were a lot of stovepipes. There was a lot of communication that didn't happen. There were a lot of agencies that didn't exist. You know, however, I think the 9-11 Commission did a, a, a great, amazing job in terms of uh, looking at it, of the problems that led to the attack, at least internally here in the U.S. And then, you know, I think Congress, along with the administration at the time, did a great job in terms of passing those recommendations and implement them to prevent the next you know, 9-11. So I think a lot of things have been put in place to, to make us safer. I think we are safer. But I think, as Dina said, we're learning that there are, it is a dangerous world and there are other things that we need to worry about, like cyber, or like other types of physical attacks that maybe are a little bit smaller, not as not as big as uh, the 9-11 attack, but they're, they're, they're still out there and they're still being attempted, you know, every day. And um, I think that, uh, you know, we were talking about, um, we've talked about is, I think, individual Americans also need to become smarter and more aware and trained and, and kind of talk to their families and understand that, you know, these things are happening locally and not just happening in the big cities or happening all over the country, you know, whatever type of incident might happen. So I do think we're kind of in a period where I think the government should be educating 
individuals and families to become smarter, whether it's, you know, updating your IT system at home, whether it's having being aware of when you're going to a football game or a stadium or, or fair or parade, any type of crowd that, you know, you're at risk, you know, in some way, maybe a small risk, but there's still a attention. risk. You should be paying attention. Absolutely. So I think that that's should be part of the changing culture that I think that we're, we're seeing. And, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, kind of this war on terror may never may never close. There may never be that, that document signed. But I think that uh, the more aware we are and the more smarter we are, the, the lower the risk, you know, that we can we can do to lower the risk down. Well, thanks to everyone for your questions and for listening to Homeland Homeroom. Make sure to email info at homelandhomeroom.com with your questions about security and follow us on Twitter at HomelandPod and follow us on Facebook at Homeland Homeroom. Please also leave us a review on iTunes. Homeland Homeroom is produced by 90 West. Our producer is Emmajean Weinstein, and we recorded the show at Monitor Studios in Washington, D.C. Thank you, everyone, for listening. 